Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and eBooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, send it in to podcast at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join the Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. So if you guys follow me on social media, you probably saw me going to the Peak Brain Institute in LA a few times, and one of those times I recorded this podcast with Dr. Andrew Hill, who is one of the top peak performance coaches in the country. He has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA. He continues to do research on attention and cognitive performance. He lectures at UCLA. I was actually his student. I took a gerontology class with him when I was, I think, a senior. Was I a senior? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was a senior, maybe a junior but I'm pretty sure a senior. I took a class with him. Actually, my final paper, I wrote, it was over 30 pages, a 30-page paper on ketogenic diets. Typical. Um, But he teaches at UCLA. He teaches courses in psychology, neuroscience, and gerontology. But relevant to this, he is also the founder of Peak Brain Institute, which is where I was at. He also hosts the Head First podcast with Dr. Hill, if you want to hear more from him on that podcast. But at Peak Brain, I went in and got some scans done, and he went over my results with me, and I'm going to start doing some neurofeedback training. If you guys listened to my last podcast where I gave you some health updates, I wanted to have that podcast go live before this one so that you could kind of get some context because at the beginning of this episode, we I recorded him explaining some of my results. I talked about in my last podcast how um, kind of the worst symptom I've been dealing with is really bad brain fog. The last especially the last six months or so, I've just kind of felt like my cognition has really declined. My memory has really declined. I'm having a really hard time with brain symptoms. And that was why I was really interested in going into peak brain and kind of just seeing where things are at. Um, It's been really difficult for me because I'm just used to being very sharp and on the ball and having a great memory and kind of just over the last year that has gone away which is just really hard for me and I want to start working on it and I know that's tied in with what's going on with my gut health obviously because dysbiosis in general can cause brain fog but then I'm also dealing with the heavy metals and the mold and all this can affect the neurological function both directly but also by impacting my sleep Um, which is what he's talking about here. He talks about my sleep, but I think also for so long, I didn't get enough sleep, especially when I was in college. And um, I've been focusing on sleep recently, but for a long time, I really didn't focus on that. So he talks more about how my brain looks like I'm just very chronically sleep deprived and how that's really playing into what's going on with, with my brain and my cognition. 
This was a really interesting experience for me because some of the testing that we did is very similar to things I did in college when I was just doing um, random studies. When you're a psych major like I was, you have to just participate in studies to get credit for it. And I did a lot of studies like this. And when I was taking this test, I could just tell that I was performing horribly. And I was always used to being really good at them when I was in college. So I've known something was off and it honestly kind of made me feel better that he, like there was, it was almost validating, I suppose, getting these results back because I've tried to communicate with close friends and family kind of what I'm going through with my brain and people I have felt like just kind of shrugged it off and were like, you're just imagining it, you're fine. But it's definitely taking a toll on me. So it kind of helped me to kind of get these results back and realize, yeah, this is definitely affecting my brain. I need to focus on my sleep and get some other things in check so that I can support this. Meanwhile, I really want to start the neurofeedback. So I'm going to start that soon, hopefully next month when I'm, I'm traveling right now. So when I'm back in town in San Diego, Peak Brain has a facility there in downtown San Diego, as well as different locations in Los Angeles. So that worked out nicely. So Peak Brain is basically like a gym for your brain. It's going to help you overcome a wide variety of cognitive challenges. And it includes brain mapping assessments, the neurofeedback training, heart rate variability biofeedback, mindfulness meditation. There are lots of different approaches they can take. And Dr. Hill will explain more during this episode. As well as the wide variety of conditions it can help with. Something that I found was super interesting was how it can just help with gut health in general. Um, A lot of this can help rewire your brain so that you are better able to enter the parasympathetic rest and digest state in general. And we change the way the brain works so that we are not always stressed out and we are sharper. There's lots of different things this can help with. So Dr. Hill will explain all of that in this episode. I also just wanted to mention though that if you're interested in getting services from Peak Brain Institute, then mention this podcast and you can get 10% off of services. If you go to peakbraininstitute.com slash Christina, that will also get you 10% off. They can help set you up with distance neurofeedback as well, although definitely best to do it in person there, but that is an option if you want to look into this. I think neurofeedback is super fascinating and I know it's not as widely available to people. I think because we kind of touch on this in the podcast, there's not a ton of research about it, but I mean, also it's incredibly expensive, you know, so I think that's a barrier to entry for many people. And so I don't want anyone to listen to this and feel like, you have to do neurofeedback, um, but he gives some great tips. But also, you know, I just like, I think it's interesting to learn about these different options. And if you do have the means and you're in a certain health situation where you think this could help you, it's just something interesting to learn about um, and maybe look into. So 
I just wanted to put that out there that you can't get that 10% off if you mention this podcast or go to peakbraininstitute.com slash Christina. I don't get any kickback from that. (laughs) So that's just them being nice. So yeah. Before we get into this episode though, I want to talk to you for a second about this week's podcast sponsor, Ned. I'm sure you know how much I love Ned's full spectrum hemp oil, which actually can provide benefits with a lot of conditions similar to that of neurofeedback. Obviously, this is working in a completely different way. The Ned full spectrum hemp oil will stimulate the endocannabinoid system in the body, but people have seen improvements with things like anxiety, depression, PTSD, chronic conditions like epilepsy, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. It can be helped to treat insomnia, promote sleep. Um, And these are all things that neurofeedback can also help with as well. The NED CBD, though, can also act as an anti-inflammatory, a natural pain reliever. It's also a rich source of antioxidants. So this is my favorite, quote, CBD oil in the world. The only one I will use. The ingredients are amazing. It's just the pure CBD and other phytocannabinoids and non-GMO MCT oil. A lot of other companies put flavorings or inflammatory oils into their CBD to cut costs and just to hide the flavor if their CBD isn't from a really pure, great source like Ned's, but they don't need to hide any flavor. It tastes delicious. And I say quote CBD oil because it's a full spectrum oil. So It contains the CBD, but also other active cannabinoids like CBG, CBC, CBDA, CBGA. So it's not just the CBD. You've got the full entourage helping you out. Ned's full spectrum hemp oil will not get you high. It is not marijuana, but it can help you relax. I like to take it every evening, two to three hours before I go to sleep. I recommend starting with a 300 milligram and then you can dose up. Um, Just get the feel for it. I like to take it in the morning too when I'm feeling a little more anxious, but I just love this product. They make all of their products from organic, whole, natural ingredients. They're all small batch and slow crafted and they go the extra mile. They infuse all of the batches of full spectrum hemp oil with love and gratitude and they attune them to binaural beats. You can taste the difference. This stuff is real deal and I love hearing your testimonials about how much this has really helped you in various aspects of your life. I know so many of you are just obsessed with this as I am, which makes me so happy. You know, I would not be about this if I didn't agree 100%. Plus, if you guys don't know Rhett and Adrian from Ned, the founders, they were on this podcast. Make sure you listen. They are the most genuine, the kindest humans in the world. If you ever have to call customer service, you will talk with one of them directly. They love their customers. So if you want to give Ned a try, if you want to try out their full spectrum hemp oil, their body butter, any of their lip balms, I love the cardamom one, then just go to helloned.com and you can use my discount code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, for 15% off. It's a great gift at this time of year. I'm giving it to a few people. If you have a friend who needs to kind of cool their jets, maybe this is a good idea. Or if your mom is just really high strung, 
help a girl out, you know? So again, my discount code is wellness and that will get you 15% off of any products from helloned.com. So let's go ahead and hop into this chat with Dr. Hill. I loved talking to him. He is so incredibly smart and it was really fun to talk to him in a context outside of class. The last time I had talked to him was when he was my professor at UCLA. Fun story. I remember emailing him during that class, asking him what his favorite keto books were. And that class had nothing to do with ketosis necessarily, but somehow it kept coming up during class. I t- we talked about this in the episode. It was really funny. But anyways, he is incredibly intelligent, a lot of great wisdom to share. And we also talked a bit about circadian rhythm, which is something I've been really geeking out over. I think all the girls in my program know I've been really into this. So I loved that he was talking about things that were just very my jam and that I've been talking about too recently. So a lot of great knowledge. So the beginning of this is going to be him talking about my results and then we're just going to kind of roll into things that aren't related to me specifically that will help you. But I thought it would be interesting for you guys to kind of hear his feedback on my results as if you're in there with me. Um, But that's just the couple minutes at the beginning. So don't worry. The majority of this is not about my brain. It's about how to optimize yours. So let's hop right into this little chat with Dr. Andrew Hill. You have all my results. I do on the screen. Let me see. I just went away. I do. Yep. Okay. So why don't you explain what you're looking at right now? So yeah, we did two things with you, Christina. We did an attention test, which is called a continuous performance task. um, And that looks at sustained attention as well as what we call inhibitory control or the ability to not react. And it's, I'm sure you remember, it's a very enjoyable task that for like, yeah, (laughs) so we're intentionally getting you to perform at your worst. So for 20 Uh minutes, you're staring at a screen and we flash a number on the screen, a one or a two, or we speak a number over the speakers, a one or a two. And of course your job was to click the mouse button when you saw or heard a one, but not when you saw or heard a two. And we flash or speak these numbers about one per second for 20 minutes. So very, very quickly you fatigue and either miss things, which we would call inattention, not Mm -hmm. clicking on ones, or start clicking when you don't want to on the twos, the distractors, and that's impulsivity or response control. And we look at how you perform over time. We look at different aspects of each trial, how quickly you can bring your resources online, if they fatigue, auditory versus visual. And we come up with a set of uh, resources teased apart in your attention. So to give people a sense of where the scores are, uh, about 100 points is average on these tests, and we typically look at them uh, where, with about a 15-point standard deviation in this population metrics. And so we picked up some attention uh, resources for you as well as some impulsivity resources, and it looks like you have a little bit of difficulty staying focused. You're about half a standard deviation below average, and so you may drift at times or get stuck mm-hmm. in your head and miss things in the outside world. And on the impulsivity side, you're a couple of standard deviations below average there, suggesting that you squirrel. And, you know, it's easy to pull things, have your attention pulled by things. And you're probably somebody who notices everything but can't only notice one thing. And it's hard for you to filter and hard for you not to just take everything in and make patterns of things and see the, the thing before the next person next, you know, oversees the thing jump out. And you're a little bit reactive and 
uh, synthetic, so to speak, in your attention, but not very good at being heads down and focused on boring tasks. That would be true. I get very frustrated with myself because I'll start something and then think of something else and then I move on to my next task without finishing the first. Yep. And then I keep doing that perpetually. And yeah. then I find myself never finishing. Yeah, that's pretty classic ADHD stuff. And the, the magnitude of these of these attention performance scores would suggest that you're probably not that far away from that category. Um, my goal is never to get you a diagnostic label. It's to identify the specific resources. And then, of course, we usually do neurofeedback and get rid of the problem and exercise it away over time. So while the label ADHD may be valid for you, I'm more uh, specifically talking about that your vigilance is a little soft. It's hard for mm-hmm. you to alert, to notice the thing initially, to drag that lens of your attention around. Mm-hmm. It takes you just a little tiny bit extra effort to focus on the, the thing when you first see something or first notice something. And then um, when you fatigue, especially, I'm guessing that you tend to get a little bit impulsive and reactive and stop being quite so choice-driven and a little bit more driven by the environment. Now, people with the kind of brain you have tend to be driven by the environment anyways, the ADHD kind of brain. You know, it's kind of a trope, but the average, like, teenager who has ADHD can sit and play video games for, like, 27 hours straight without a break, Mm -hmm. but they can't sit in a classroom for 27 minutes without, you know, getting up and being disruptive or doodling or spacing out or something. So it's not so much that you have a deficit of attention resources. It's about Mm -hmm. you require the environment to tell you to focus or to be calm or to do whatever it is you need to do. And the absence of highly stimulating things, you don't necessarily have the ability to marshal and control the resources quite as reliably on your own. So you'd be the person to be like in in a hunting environment or in a war or something really, really creative or synthetic. You'd Mm -hmm. be the person to, you know, lead us all. But in like a boring droning accounting class, Mm -hmm. you would make all the mistakes because you wouldn't have anything... um, that would engage the somewhat powerful resources you have in a high stimulus environment are not completely under your control in a low stimulus environment. That's sort of the brain I'm seeing here. It's so interesting because it's like how much of this is just, you were talking about how I'm sleep deprived. Yeah. So how much of that is just sleep deprivation versus right. just the way I am? Right. I don't know. I can't tell that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, rhetorical the kind of, but... <laughs> behavior, we, we, we do two things with you, a behavior test and a brain map, or map mm-hmm. of your EEG. And the behavior test will vary day-to-day based on sleep. Mm-hmm. So after getting some sleep for a couple of weeks, you can retest the attention stuff. And if it's yeah. if the only thing that's changed is your sleep and you still show the rough patterns, we would uh, believe that the bottlenecks we found were valid to begin with. Mm-hmm. But I would expect, even if they are, all the numbers to come up a little bit. Because right now, they're one to three standard deviations off, or even yeah. more here and there. And I would expect that you may have a touch of that sort of magical brain that does pattern matching. And is, you know, ADHD is the label we give it, but it ends, it ends up being very um, beneficial in some environments, creative environments, high stimulus environments. So there's an evolutionary sort of reason for having that kind of brain, you know, mm-hmm. just not a, uh, we didn't evolve to sit in cubicles. That's mm-hmm. all. So the pressure wasn't to make us all, you know, able to do heads down attention tasks yeah. with success. So it's it's an interesting pattern, but it's not that unusual. Um, I, I do believe it's pretty exacerbated by sleep depth if because the worst scores for your focus, which is sustaining attention over time with no stimulus or no load, and then consistency or what happens moment to moment. So while some of your scores are fine, they're not super consistent and they seem to fatigue easily. Mm-hmm. So this is probably you know, a little bit of ADHD made much worse by a lot of sleep issues. 
Okay, how much of this, though, is affected by, like, a test like this would be affected by my sleep the night before? A little bit, yeah. Not a huge amount. And the, and the brain mapping, not at all. Oh, really? Yeah, the brain mapping is stable year after year after year unless you do something to your brain. The attention testing is a little affected by did you rest, are you trying really hard, but not completely affected, just a little bit. And taking it twice in a row, it's almost always the same uh, scores. So there's mm. a little bit of an effect on the if you didn't sleep well last night. But for the brain maps to show the change, you would have to have not slept well significantly for many weeks before mm -hmm. it would really uh, show up as a uh, as a pattern in the brain activity. It was interesting for me just in terms of like personal experience with this mm -hmm. when I was taking this test. I could tell I'm like I'm doing horrible. <laughs> like. Um, because like I told you before the past few months I felt like my brain function yeah, has just yeah. it's been really really hard for me and it's interesting because I've taken a lot of tests similar to that just in like in college doing, like you know we have to do all those psych experiments yep. um, so many tests similar to that and I used to always like nail it sure and that's why it was so it was honestly hard for me to take that test emotionally because yeah. I'm like I don't know what's happening to my head the yeah. past few months yeah and, and of course you're making your performance your worst because it's not loaded there's no stimulus yeah. but also you're uncaffeinated Mm -hmm. And if you rely on caffeine day to day, I don't. You don't? Okay, so not even that, that excuse. It's yeah. just you slowing down because of who knows why. But it looks like a sleep issue from your brain maps, too. So let's uh, talk about those for a second. Yeah. Um, essentially, we look at your resting brain activity. So we put a cap on your head and squirted it full of gel and had you sit eyes closed and open for several minutes each. Yeah. I'm sure you enjoyed that. That was great. Yeah. I didn't know I was going to get my head gelled, oh, really? so that was nice. Nice. So hopefully you'd have to be on camera right afterwards or something. But um, So we take a resting baseline. So we have you sit eyes closed and then eyes open for several minutes each. And uh, we take the resting baseline and compare it to a database of several thousand people mm -hmm. and see how unusual your brain is compared to other people your age. Mm -hmm. And then we look at the statistically most unusual patterns to try to guess what they might mean. Mm -hmm. Now, because I'm comparing you to a population of people, the patterns I'm getting out of this analysis are sort of valid at a population level. But for you, it's more of a hypothesis level analysis, not a diagnostic. So I'll say, oh, hey, this pattern often means mm -hmm. X, Y, or Z. And if you're like, yes, I, I experienced that, then we know what's going on. But if you're like, no, it's not true for me, then it's not true. I mean, we really believe your experience, not the data here. So mm -hmm. the data is uh, suggestive and prognostic more than diagnostic in this way. Now, we're looking at um, colored heads and also connectivity patterns uh, here on the pages. And the biggest things that jump out for you are slight excess um, in the slow brainwaves delta, in the fast brainwaves beta in the back of the head, especially with eyes closed. You also make low amounts of alpha in the back of the head with eyes closed. And that those three patterns would suggest... You know, most of us close our eyes and shut down the visual system, which is the back of your head. Mm -hmm. Yours is um, a little low power alpha, so it's and a little high power beta, so it's staying a little bit active with your eyes closed. Mm -hmm. So your brain has gone uh, into this mode where it's learned the world might not be terribly predictable, and so it's keeping its mental feelers up and scanning the environment all the time. So this doesn't look profound, uh, but if it was a bit worse, I'd be using words like hypervigilance, where you're scanning and alert and a little extra checked in and can't quite disengage from noticing things all the time. So is that like typical of someone who has an anxiety disorder? Yeah, hypervigilance may be one of the ways that anxiety shows up, sure. Uh -huh. And this is a handful of different sort of resources that get stuck when anxiety shows up. Um, anxiety as well as ADHD are interesting to talk about because they're not necessarily 
pathologies. I mean, if you're being chased by a tiger, be anxious. It's exactly the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're not being chased by a tiger, you're sitting in traffic on the 405 and someone lays on a horn and you jump like it's a tiger, mm-hmm. your brain has learned that there may be tigers around and it's overreacting to them. The visual system, when it gets lit up like this, especially eyes closed, has learned the world is not always predictable and therefore it wants to scan the world mm-hmm. and categorize, make sure it understands what is necessary to pay attention to. Um, so those are the biggest features. And we also see a lot of delta waves, about one and a half, two standard deviations, extra delta waves uh, with eyes open and closed, more eyes closed, which is good. But basically delta excess means you're not getting enough deep, slow wave sleep, dreamless sleep. Mm-hmm. And so it's pushing back when you're awake. Mm-hmm. And we also see your alpha waves, the idling frequency has very, very low phase lag everywhere. So it's basically stuck together. So this looks like somebody who's a little foggy and is also a little bit wiped out from chronic sleep issues and kind of white knuckling your experience, gripping the world with your attention a little bit to make up for the sleep depth. So mm-hmm. this is the, one of the jokes I tell when I see this pattern is, oh, you're driving down the highway going full speed, but you're doing it with the emergency brake on. And so it's a little inefficient. From the outside, it looks fine. But from inside, it feels effortful, like you're wading through knee-high mud mentally in the afternoons, I would mm-hmm. guess. And then the fact that the alpha is a little bit uh, undercoupled or the low phase lag here, especially with the posterior beta, would suggest that some of this has a quality of rumination or worry, where you're worrying at problems like a dog with a bone. You know, oh, I should have said this, should have said this, should have said this, or stuff gets stuck in your head at times. But it's that sort of like intersection of stress and attention that probably starts to spin at times, and it's hard to put down the thing that's stressing you out. Interesting. Is that true? Um... Not really. Okay, great. So that's one of the patterns I was guessing about that doesn't necessarily it's obtain for you. Like my whole life I had really bad anxiety and that would be like me like a mm. year ago. Yeah. But oh, okay. So then it's valid because I didn't mention this, but brain mapping doesn't pick up what you're feeling today. Okay. The state. It picks yeah. up the trait, the really 10,000 foot view resource. So I'm seeing a history of rumination oh, yeah. and a tendency toward it if you got under-resourced, overstressed, and things fell over, that's how they would fall over. Yeah. Which you seem seem to know already. Yeah. So that seems valid. Yeah. yeah. I had like struggled with generalized anxiety disorder, clinical depression okay. my whole oh, life. I'm sorry to hear that. No, and then well in the past few years, you know, I got into all of us, changed my diet, my lifestyle mm-hmm. and like I really don't have that I don't right. identify with having that disorder anymore and I'm not seeing a lot so of classic makes, depression markers I'm seeing yeah. a little bit of the frontal asymmetry markers which is some depression history mostly it's a, st- a generalized stress problem with your mind getting a little stuck yeah but again I think this is compensatory to sleep depth mm-hmm. you're having to ramp up and grip the world with your stress and attention systems yeah because you're a little bit under resourced and kind of fading in your just rest. Yeah. And so this, again, looks like you're having to brute force your experience and your resources a little bit because you're wiped out. So. I, I'm. This is kind of random, but have you ever done a brain map like this on someone who's an intuitive? I have. When does it, does it look different? It does. How yeah. Does it I've like? done a few different intuitives and... Um, in February, you can turn tune into E uh, Television and see us do a psychic in, oh, real, really? in real time. Uh, on E Television in February, March, we'll okay. be on. Uh, I can show uh, Dr. Drew and I sat and went over a, a brain of a psychic in real time while they were doing their psychic reading. Wow! And did a play by play. That's so cool. And I've done a few other people like that historically, mm-hmm. and I've seen some of the same things. I, I I can't tell you what I've what a what would a psychic would show or, or an intuitive yeah. would show, 
because I just worked on these particular people mm -hmm. who had one or two interesting things happening I haven't seen happen before. Mm -hmm. But I'm not by any means an expert in this uh, in that end of things. And yeah. so it's some interesting stuff. I can't really talk about it just to keep this, the, the unveiling in February oh, or March on, on E. But yeah, sprains look a little unusual when these people are doing the thing they do. I'll, okay. tell, you, I'll tell you that. Well, I'm really, I'll have to watch that because mm. I'm really curious about that. Um, let's go back to the sleep for a sure. second yeah. because I feel like that's probably, well, at least the people I talk to, I mean, sleep is a big issue for yeah, most people. Yeah, it's foundational, of course, yeah. yeah. And, and it's easy to fix for, with neurofeedback. It's also, people generally tolerate a fair amount of sleep issues and think it's okay. And, yeah. it, and you know, humans have this lovely capacity that all of our systems can can change and grade. So when you're sleep deprived or drunk or anything else, the ability to gauge what your what your performance level is is also impaired. True. So <laughs> you can be chronically sleep deprived and think you're now a little sleepy. Yeah, yeah, not a big deal. But actually, browning every three seconds, not encoding anything in your memory because you can't pay attention to anything because you're sleepy, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So it can be a big issue for you. It looks like it's a little bit of an issue. Um, we're looking now at the average speeds of your brain waves and your delta waves are about one to two standard deviations faster than average when you're awake, which would suggest you aren't getting enough deep slow wave sleep or dreamless sleep at night. And so your brain is pushing back when you're awake and you're kind of micro sleeping, especially in the afternoons that combined with some low frequency or uh, slowed beta waves would suggest that, um, you're having some burnout in the afternoons and then your alpha waves, are a little faster than average, but I think you're even faster than average uh, compared to the average person. So you're probably experiencing a little bit of short-term memory and or word finding difficulty in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, those are not memory issues. Those are speed of processing issues. But they may feel like a memory issue. Uh, but those are likely things that will show up when you have chronic sleep issues long-term. That's going to also show up from wear and tear, you know, post-concussive kind of things. Although we did an injury analysis for you and it came back negative. So unless you've had uh, a secret history of falling out of bed as a kid, then you no. probably don't have any real wear and tear. So, and then eyes open, it looks really good, except that you do have some of these impulsivity markers. It's hard for you to control your visual attention. Uh, the brakes are a little bit off in mm -hmm. how you filter visually. So things, you know, pull you uh, in every different direction. Um, but no, we clean maps overall, just this sleep thing's really showing up here and there. And then uh, this broadly looks like somebody who's a little bit under-resourced, fog, fatigue, mm -hmm. and you're having to kind of grip the world with your resources, which produces a sense of stress and anxiety, makes you sort of feel buzzy and busy. And that may impair your sleep the next night, which means your gas tank isn't filled up the next night. So you're under-resourced the next day. So you're having a white knuckle and yeah. brute force your day. And then it's this vicious cycle where you're never getting deep enough sleep and never crisply waking up enough. So you don't really, I'm guessing, have the ability to be both calm and focused at the same time. Because mm -hmm. you're kind of tired and worn out. So unless you grip, unless you really focus your attention, you probably drift into an inattentive state a little too easily. You brown out. Yeah. So there's this, your resources are fine overall, but they look a little inefficient and probably it's difficult to manage them, especially over many hours of sustained output or something, you know? Yeah. So, so I've been talking to some doctors about my... My brain struggles recently. Okay. Um, and, you know, one of them is really, she really seems to think that a lot of it has to do with my screen usage. Okay, it may, but it's not the pure screen usage. If the screen usage is, is affecting it, it's about melatonin suppression. Mm -hmm. And there's easy ways to get around that without changing screens. Mm -hmm. Just put on some blue blocking glasses, some yellow amber lens glasses at dusk, you know, 7 p.m. or something, mm -hmm. and wear them till bedtime. 
Uh, I think you were one of my students at one point, right? Yeah. So I'm not sure how much we went into circadian stuff in that in the class we uh, we were in together. But um, the strongest circadian cue, and I've I used to teach this differently, so maybe this is new information for you. Mm-hmm. The strongest cue for circadian entrainment is when you eat, not light. So the biggest thing you should do for circadian entrainment is not eat between dinner and bedtime. Yeah. Okay. And then... I didn't learn that from you, but I just read a really great book talking about that. Okay, wonderful. Um, what is it called? It's like Change Your Schedule, Change Your Life. Have you heard of that book? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's talking about like clock genes and things like that. Right. And so, yeah, you can you can really modify a lot of this stuff by controlling when you eat. Eat in the meal times of the time zone you're in or want to be in, and it will drag mm-hmm. your brain around much faster. And then... A lot of people are focused on uh, screens and artificial light after dusk as being a melatonin suppressing phenomena. It definitely happens, but I'm not sure it's a huge issue unless other things are going on. It's easy enough to modify. Either do a screen diet two hours before bed, no screens, Mm -hmm. or wear blue blocking glasses, yellow or amber lens glasses from dusk until you go to bed. And any light coming in won't suppress melatonin production. But, okay, in general, do you think that, I mean, we use screens now more than ever before. Yeah. Do you think that this is affecting our our brains in general? Not generally. I don't think it's affecting the resources broadly. I think it's training us to use those resources in a little bit of an inefficient way. Okay. Like, you know, people that are used to using computers have an attention span that tends to engage a little differently than people that aren't used to using computers. Or if you're used to reading in paperback books versus on a computer screen, the amount you're willing to read between visual breaks is different. But that's about using the resources, not about tra- not changing the brain. Like you can put a kid in front of a, a, a first-person shooter uh-huh. video game, and they play all day long. At the end of that time, the only thing that's happened to the brain is the brain's become more plastic and has actually learned uh-huh. from the exercise of the video game. It hasn't taught the person to use that resource differently with the exception of the behavior, like the 15-year-old kid who can't switch gears because he's used to getting what he wants and used to the high oh, stimulus. Okay. You know, so, so it's behaviorally a problem. Just like you can get addicted to television or food or sex or anything yeah. else, the substance or the, the thing isn't necessarily the problem. It's your relationship with it. The same is true with screens. Okay, Anything can become dysregulated, especially high stimulus and rewarding things very easily. You can mm-hmm. get dysregulated relationships you know, with anything stimulating yeah. or rewarding. I don't think it's actually causing any trouble in the brain, just, you know, it's more of a social behavioral problem in terms of managing people's expectations and what the teen needs to, where the boundaries are and what they need to do in terms of, you know, managing other things in their life, which teens are bad at anyways. Yeah. So. Okay. That's really interesting. Okay. Let's go back to, um, the circadian rhythm topic. So back to it's when, when you eat, when you eat the strongest, there's several cues for, um, telling your, uh, body essentially when the sun comes up because mm-hmm. the earth has a 24 hour clock of course the body's clock in most people is slightly longer than that because it's easier to reset a clock than it is to stretch a clock mm-hmm. so um, most of us have a 24 25 26 hour clock and certain things in that 24-hour Earth cycle will reset or synchronize our clock to the Earth's photoperiod. So that circadian to photoperiod synchronization is the key about circadian health, basically. The strongest cue is when you eat, as I mentioned. So eating at mealtimes is important. Um, Intermittent fasting or stopping, you know, eating within a certain window. Mm -hmm. Usually people eat within eight or nine or 10 windows during the day and stop eating Mm mid-afternoon. That allows the circadian cycling of growth hormone and 
things that are already happening, cortisol, et cetera, when you sleep, when you wake, to happen more fully. So you get better growth hormone release two hours after bed, better cortisol spike when you wake up in the morning yeah. if you're eating in a shortened window. And so you also get stronger circadian cycling, a, a wider range almost. So that, that's, that's the eating one. Wait, wait, let me, I mm. want to get into that more. Okay, because, well, with intermittent fasting, people use different windows. Like yeah. some people are like pushing their window up and some yeah. are pushing it, you yeah. know, so you could be eating from 12 to 8 p.m. or you could be eating. From yeah, I think that it doesn't work as well mm. during a late window. I think that all of the benefits, almost all the benefits, seem to show up when you do 12 hours on, 12 hours off, first of all. Okay. So any constrained feeding window is probably helping the circadian cycling okay. and the oscillatory nature of all those signals. Mm-hmm. The literature seems to be that if you got into eight or nine hours, it's a little bit better. I don't think there's been any good study about you know when and when that eating window is compared to your own sleep window, let's say, or the Earth's photo period. But I have a hunch based on when uh, growth hormone, cortisol, etc., are released that you'd be much better uh, stopping eating mid-afternoon than you would starting eating in the mid-afternoon. That makes sense to me. I think you should be eating. You know, if you're up at six a.m. or something, yeah. eat from eight to two, or eight to three, eight to yeah. four. And then stop again. Interesting. Okay, let's say someone's not doing IF, a feeding yeah, window yeah. like that. You so you're saying you would want to not eat between dinner and bedtime, right? But like what time is dinner time? You know, because people eat dinner all different times. Depends when bedtime is too, right? Uh-huh. So I would say a couple hours before bed, there's no feeding at all. Mm-hmm. And let's say if we're you know Westerners and we're eating you know dinner at six or six thirty or seven, and beds at ten, that's mm-hmm. probably fine or eleven. Mm-hmm. But if you're going, you know, I mean, it's always of course individual. Um, also, when you get up, I mean, there's several cues on the circadian entrainment. Uh, when you eat, when you get light, yeah. evening light and morning light both have an impact, and the light, the glasses only affect evening light. Mm-hmm. So the other thing you can do is get morning light. Within one hour after dawn, there's a temperature or a color of light in the air that resets circadian rhythms by tapping into the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain. There's um, cells that monitor the color of light hitting the retina. The suprachiasmatic nucleus sits on top of the optic chiasm, Mm -hmm. the place where the optic nerves cross. And it it tells the brain what temperature, essentially, of light it is. And there's special frequencies available early in the day when the sun's very low on the horizon. And that resets the circadian rhythm pretty well. Taking a brief pause while we're talking about circadian rhythm to tell you guys quickly about this week's podcast sponsor for Sigmatic. You know, I love my four Sigmatic elixirs. I'm actually currently sipping on a cordyceps as I record this. If you are not familiar with four Sigmatic, they make a ton of different mushroom coffees, mushroom superfood blends, and mushroom elixirs because they are on a mission to make drinking mushrooms and superfoods delicious and easy to do because there are a ton of functional mushrooms out there that have incredible health benefits. These mushrooms can help to support your immunity, your energy, longevity, can also help to support your brain function. Lion's mane is a great mushroom to include in your diet if you want to enhance your cognition, support your memory, support your concentration. That is the elixir to go to if you are a studier, if you are someone who wants to optimize your brain. Right now, like I mentioned, I'm drinking the cordyceps because 
it took everything in me not to go for the caffeine, but you guys know I'm super sensitive to caffeine and I wanted something to give me a little bit of energy, but that wouldn't give me a caffeine spike that would keep me up for three days. So cordyceps is great for providing a natural energy. It's an adaptogen, not a stimulant. So it's going to help you produce and maintain some steady energy levels. No spike and crash like caffeine might. I also love my reishi, great for stress and sleep. I love to drink that a few hours before bed or even right before bed. And then the chaga, which is great for immunity, has a ton of antioxidants, really, really supportive of the immune system at this time of year. I love to drink the chaga in the morning. Cordyceps is great for athletes around a workout. Reishi is great in the evening. You can have a full day of for Sigmatic Mushroom Elixirs. If you're a coffee person, I highly recommend their mushroom coffee mix. The mushroom coffee will get you that coffee, but without the jitters because it's mixed in with different mushrooms like cordyceps, chaga, lion's mane. So if you want to really boost your brain, get the mushroom coffee mix with the lion's mane and chaga. It tastes like coffee, doesn't taste like anything else just tastes like coffee and it'll get you a more balanced sense of stimulation so again you are not going to get that crazy caffeine spike and crash it'll give you the caffeine without that intense spike something else i'm really digging at this time of year is the mushroom hot cacao i love the one with the reishi especially you know, if you just want some hot chocolate, all you gotta do is get your mushroom hot cacao mix out and you're good to go. They also have a ton of other delicious products, including a matcha blend, they have a matcha latte blend, a chai latte mushroom mix, a golden latte mushroom mix. So if you are into the latte life, hit up some Four Sigmatic. They come in easy on-the-go packets. All you have to do is open up a packet, put it in a cup, pour in some hot water, and you're good to go. That's why they're great for travel. If you want to be fancier, you could add in some nut milk, make it more latte-esque, but I usually just mix it straight with water, and it's delicious. Or if you want more, you can buy a bigger tin instead of the travel packs, but I just like those single-serve packs. You don't have to pre-measure anything. It's very easy. They're seriously so delicious and comforting, and I love them at this time of year especially, but I would drink them whether or not they had health benefits, so it's just a win-win situation. I get health benefits, and it's delicious. It's also a great gift at this time of year, so you could get somebody one of the sampler packs from Four Sigmatic or just one of the elixirs you think they would enjoy, and it's of the highest quality, so all of the Four Sigmatic products are made from wildcrafted or log-grown and certified organic mushrooms, and they're all tested for pesticides, heavy metals, irradiation, all of that. So if you are interested in trying out Four Sigmatic products for yourself or want to pick some up for a loved one for a holiday gift, just go to foursigmatic.com CRW and use my code CRW to get 15% off of your purchase. Again, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash CRW, and my code CRW will get you 15% off. Okay, let's get back to chatting more about the circadian rhythm with Dr. Andrew Hill. Uh, so other things you can do is consistent wake time, and other things you can do is... Uh, 
exercise early in the morning to start off that hormonal cascade pretty powerfully. So any of these things will work. All of these things will also work. And some mm-hmm. of them are more easy to do than others. I mean, I tell people, yeah, reset your circadian rhythm. Get up uh, within an hour of dawn every day for a week. Mm-hmm. And some people are like, great, I'm already up. And some people yeah. are like, yeah, oh my gosh, dawn, I'm up at noon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why you aren't really entrained. You know, yeah. like there's reasons for this. And I mean, who was it? Uh, uh, Farmer's Almanac there. Um, uh, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Yeah. Um, blank Franklin was that Franklin? I don't uh, know. Farmer's Almanac. Well, there's something about that and yeah. going to bed early and waking up very early. I mean, a lot of biohackers these days, you know, Hal's Miracle Morning and other things. Mm-hmm. People are finding early morning activity, getting up before the rest of the world, seems to do something. I get up at 4:30 now every day. Wow. And I used to get up at 6:30 and feel like I was getting up early and go do yoga and uh-huh. come to work and things. And I would get eight hours sleep and always be tired. I get like six hours sleep now and I'm never tired. I'm getting up much earlier and getting less sleep and I'm much better regulated because I'm getting really strong circadian entrainment. So my body always knows what time it is. So it's never sliding past the Earth's clock. So I'm never awake during the day when my body wants to be asleep or thinks it's the middle of the night. So what time do you go to sleep? Um, 10. Okay. Roughly, but by 10, yeah, 9.30, 10. Well, okay, that, so that's another piece of the puzzle, though. So about sleep. Yeah. If people are not getting enough sleep, is it just that they're not getting enough hours or the wrong time? Like, let's say you're getting eight to nine hours of sleep, but you're sleeping from midnight to nine. Like, yeah. is that It's worse? probably fine. Okay. I mean, really about the architecture of your sleep. Can you fall asleep adequately? Mm-hmm. Can you cycle through several sleep cycles of 90 minutes, roughly? Can you get... You know, slow wave sleep, deep sleep, RAM, all the stages you need. There's different things sleep has to be doing at night. So people can get 10 hours and not get good quality. Mm-hmm. People can get six hours and it can be amazing. A lot of individual variability in terms of what you, uh, the amount you seem to need. And there's some research suggesting some people are better at being uh, owls versus larks, night owls versus morning people. Yeah. But I think that people can be, you know, the, the brain is very, very changeable and can be, um, that can be learned. And so you can learn to become a lark instead of a, a night owl if you need to or want to. Okay. I was actually going to ask you that because I've, I've been talking to different people about that topic. Like, are we just that way or can yeah. we change it? Yeah, generally, the brain is everything's changeable. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, um, something like a third of our experience is genetic mm-hmm. in terms of the brain and two thirds of its you know environment and experience and everything else. So um, very, very little is cast in stone and almost everything is learnable, I think. That's good to know. So. Well, okay. What do you? What tips do you have for like improving quality of sleep? Because I think a lot of people don't. Get. Yeah. So there's a few things you should do, and, and it's more important to know if the quality is not great, so you can start addressing it. Because lots of things affect sleep. Um, the some general uh, advice on sleep hygiene, if you're having trouble sleeping, would be first of all, don't do anything in bed except for sleep. Don't study. Don't read. Don't eat. Don't watch TV, because you're. You want to have a state-dependent reinforcer. If you're going into the bed, your body wants to know, oh, this is where we sleep and have that be triggered. Mm -hmm. Um, Other things you can do are, uh, again, make your morning rise time consistent. If you have lots of crazy schedules and lots of things you have to do and you can't always get enough sleep, at least make sure you're getting up at the same time every day. That will help the circadian entrainment you know, uh, stay solid so you don't have as much of an erosion of your resources from a night or two of bad sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, not eating between dinner and bedtime will mean that when you do fall asleep, you have a stronger release of growth hormone and other things that need to happen so you can go into more of a healing mode and get much deeper sleep. 
some people are very sensitive to light, so having blackout curtains is necessary. Some folks are very sensitive to even looking at screens and things, having melatonin suppression, so using blue blocker glasses, of course, can be, can be useful. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a bunch of things that will affect a pretty complex process, so yeah. it's useful to uh, you know, try, and, try it and see what works. Yeah, I think that's probably the most common thing I hear from clients is that they, they can't get good sleep. Like, they can't fall asleep or they can't stay asleep and it's they're waking up. It's such a problem. Yeah, it's such a problem. Do, do you feel like that is the most common issue you're seeing, like like the sleep problem? Or is there something else that's usually affecting people's brain health? I mean, I, I often see lots of things. And people often come in with one you know goal yeah. and we find two or three things they want to work on. Uh, I would say that sleep is usually an issue uh, or wear and tear, low-key concussions, um, at least half the time. It's, it's a factor, mm-hmm. but so is stress management, so is attention management, so is, you know, uh, or other things for different people. So um, I typically go after helping people throw out all of the resources, mm-hmm. and I would say either, you know, sluggishness internally from either chronic sleep issues or from wear and tear mm-hmm. shows up at least half of the time. What about nutrition? Nutrition's important. Uh, it's very individualized. I have a few thoughts about you know the best ways to eat. Let's hear them for uh, for pro sort of brain health, and they are broadly um, minimizing starches and sugars eventually to zero if you can, and maximizing good fats. And mm-hmm. so they should be most of your calories, and you know, over time, you know, fats and, and fats and vegetables essentially should be mm-hmm. most of your diet. Um, but uh, again, people are very individual and there's lifestyle factors and cultural factors and genetic factors where diet is different across different people. But I really do think people, uh, you know, Westerners who eat like Westerners are doing themselves a great disservice and you should be having, you know, no more than 50, 60, 70 grams of carbohydrates a day Mm -hmm. and never spiking your blood sugar. And I also think that Westerners tend to eat a quantity of calories and food that is much, much too high. Mm -hmm. And most of us are actually busy inefficiently processing extra food we didn't need to eat. So that's sort of my take on it. But I, I think that most people could get a huge benefit in focus, concentration, sleep, attention, et cetera, aging by going after like a primal or paleo kind of diet. I don't think anyone really needs to be in a ketogenic diet okay? because the ketogenic diet, of course, helps you have lots of benefits. Mm-hmm. It can be used for brain health interventions like seizures and things. But unless you're really going after profound uh, interventions with a ketogenic diet, I think you're better off just becoming near keto and sort of flexible Mm -hmm. around the ketogenic response, which is paleo or primal. So you're never quite spiking your blood sugar, but it can handle carbs. You happen to get some, and there's more of a metabolic flexibility going on. A lot of the things we think about in terms of brain aging are dramatically accelerated by spiking insulin, by excess sugars, glycation or oxidation of those sugars. Mm -hmm. And there's there's almost no downside as far as we know from reducing caloric intake, from reducing sugars. Humans Humans can adapt to almost anything. So we can handle an all starch diet or an all protein fat diet. You know, we'll have some problems over time with that, but it looks like we're better adapted to the diets that minimize starches, sugars, especially the free sugars we have in the sort of post-industrial society we have. But um, that's my take on it, is to go you know, paleo, primal, yeah. sort of near keto, uh, ideally. Do you think that the benefits of um, a ketogenic diet on brain health come from the, the low-carb aspect or the high-fat or a combination? Both. You both. think both? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. carbs are inflammatory. Yeah. Fat's anti-inflammatory. It's just mm-hmm. protein when eaten, usually. Um, so, uh, but... 
the the carbs cause oxidation, which is causes more inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about not spiking the insulin. So the whole system regulates with lower inflammatory cytokines and lower secondary things that are um, boosted with chronic high insulin, you know, mm-hmm. secondary uh, signaling molecules and things. So I think it's it's a whole system wide approach. I don't think it's really about the carbs per se. Mm-hmm. It's about the flexibility of the system you dump carbs into. Yeah. If you dump high levels of carbs into it, the system becomes inflexible and the extra sugar spills out everywhere and breaks tissues. Mm-hmm. If you have low amounts of carbs, then the system remains very flexible and can handle whatever you throw at it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think about the um, the carnivore diet. All meat all the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a little silly. I think humans need uh, some trace nutrients that aren't in protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you eat, you know, one type of animal protein and that's all you eat, you will actually have malnutrition. I mean, this, you know, classic stories of people, you know, living just on salmon or something, fish in the ocean, in the uh-huh. ocean and having major malnutrition. Interesting. So, I mean, you can't just eat animal protein. Yeah. Uh, you need some fat, which comes, usually comes with animal protein. Yeah. But... You get a lean, you know, if I gave you bison all day long, you would starve yeah. eventually because there's, no, there's almost no fat there. Yeah. So I also think the micronutrients that w- can show up in animals may not show up in animals. And so getting, and then of course the antioxidants and other, you know, really good things in plants and other uh, vegetables and fruits and things are um, not in animals. So I, I don't, I, I really do think you can't be vegan and live a brain healthy diet. Yeah. But I don't think... <laughs> Explain that to people. Well, I mean, you aren't going to have complete proteins uh-huh. in vegan diet in a, in a, in a natural hunter-gatherer way. You can't gather enough food mm-hmm. to have complete proteins. You can't have the B vitamins you need because they just don't show up in most plants. Yeah. And it's a pretty big problem. And also micronutrients. And so I think you have chronic malnutrition in vegans. In, yeah. In, in when they eat the way... Oh, hey, I'm going to go to you know, Whole Foods and just eat lots of the vegan version, yeah. which is full of chemical processed foods and sugar and starch. And so you end up with, with nutritional issues and, you know, that pre-diabetic metabolic syndrome because you're trying to eat in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. I think the only reason to be vegans for ethical reasons. Mm-hmm. And nowadays with, uh, you know, farm, uh, uh, meat being grown in tanks from, you know, pluripotent stem cells mm-hmm. and the ethical concern, uh, discussions around muscles being, you know, vegan friendly. I think that the the strict ethical reasons for being vegan are starting to erode as well. Interesting. Yeah, it's very hot topic, especially here in L.A. Right, right. You know what my favorite day when I took your class was? Um, you kind of, I mean, <laughs> I don't remember what we were talking about, but suddenly it turned into like keto uh-huh. out of nowhere. Uh-huh. Um, and it's not, a tr- it's not a nutrition class for people listening. Yeah, it's a, um, a gerontology yeah, class. Yeah, yeah, so I had been at the time strict keto for about a year because it was really helping me overcome my gut issues mm-hmm. um and you know i'm very well aware of the fact that none of my peers like knew what whatever so then you you, you spit out keto and then someone goes what do you mean reducing carbs and you're like they're like how many a day and you're like i don't know like 50 to 70 grams and everybody like freaked yeah. out the yeah. whole room and especially because you're talking to it was mostly like, you know, like 20 year old. Yeah. Women. Young, athletic, healthy people. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, 20, you know, an apple, 20 grams of carbs, a sandwich is like 30, 40, a soda is 30, 40, 50, yeah. 60. And we're all getting multiple times the amount of carbs we need every day. And 
Um, I mean, for one of the classes, I'm not sure which class you took, for one of the classes, I have people track their behavior and look and see how things affect themselves. Oh, really? And sometimes people yeah. drop carbs out and see how suddenly their sleep changes, their mood changes, their yeah. energy changes, their learning changes. So I think that we are a little bit, um, you know, uh, dependent on carbohydrates and they're doing some great damage. We don't really, mm-hmm. uh, as a culture, aren't really aware of that, you know, enough. Yeah. So It was definitely an interesting day. I think mo- when I was walking i walked all the way back to me 45 minutes to walk back to my apartment and the whole way everybody was talking about oh, how really? you just, they're like what does he mean well what would i eat like how would that work i would be so tired and i was cracking up and i'm thinking like oh my god it's not yeah. that crazy you guys but um yeah it's also really good. hard to do i mean often for ucla students you know i, I have this stunt conversation and then i realized that half the students especially when i was teaching freshman courses mm. they were all eating in the, in the residence halls yeah. the, the the dining halls and you can't eat in a super healthy way mm-hmm. generally eating in mood in, in, in meal plans yeah so um a lot of thankfully my classes now are juniors and seniors are mostly off campus they can try some of these things but when i was teaching freshmen uh, we got to this thing about you know diet, diet and modifying pro-brain healthy diets. They would freak out because there was no way they could do it. Yeah, L- eating in the residence halls, living in the dorms, and they were like, "What? I mean, like crap for the next two years because because yeah. I'm living in a Western you know diet world." Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a hard thing to manage. You can you could do it. Just takes effort. Like I changed my diet when I was in the dorms, and I just literally cooked everything in my microwave, and I'm like, "This is better than." eating crap yeah, you yeah. know and I went to I walked to Whole Foods every day pick things up micro takes a lot of effort takes a lot of planning yeah. I found that any kind of diet that's not typical takes a lot of planning otherwise you end up just reaching for crap when you reach for crap yeah um, so a lot of planning a lot of care and then uh, it's doable but it you know not easy sometimes yeah also, another common habit is the caffeine habit. How does that affect um, brain health? Well, it looks like that two to four cups of coffee a day seem to be really quite healthy for you, reduce the risks of uh, symptoms from Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and cancer pretty mm-hmm. well lifelong. I think I saw a study recently suggesting that the total number of cups of coffee per day reduce total causes of lifelong death with a positive correlation, more coffee, less death, period. And, the, and there was no upper limit actually in that study. Like it didn't actually, t- often these studies uh-huh. tail off four or five cups in this yeah. cardiovascular, other kind of constraints. This one was like, it was like a p- positive correlation with coffee consumption and redu- reduction in uh, causes of death. So two or three cups a day seems to be the sweet spot for, for coffee and other forms of caffeine are also good for you. But yeah. it seems to be the coffee is the best form because of all the polyphenols in the coffee bean itself. Interesting. So of course not if you, you know, throw it full of sugar, but if you're drinking coffee, roasted beans, it's actually quite healthy for you. I think Westerners may have more dietary consumption of antioxidants from coffee than all other sources combined, mm. just from the roasted beans because we drink so much of it. Okay. So unless you have cardiovascular, gut health issues, you know, heart heart issues, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of anxiety. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Then it can I be a problem. can't do it. Cause... But you know, maybe you want to mix your caffeine source with L-theanine, mm. the amino acid, mm-hmm. and then it'll, your your coffee will treat you like tea instead mm-hmm. of treating you like like coffee. It'll be a little more smooth and calming. Yeah. L-theanine is a naturally occurring amino acid found in tea. It's why tea treats you. Uh, the, the, the same level of caffeine in tea is much less pushy because the GABAergic L-theanine balances the adenosine uh, sort of boost of uh, the caffeine. Interesting. Okay, good to know. Well, okay, so, I mean, these are good tips for 
the average Joe, I suppose. But what about someone? So I was just talking to somebody and she had a really serious brain injury. Uh Um, She's had eight concussions and then she got in a car accident that just kind of pushed things over the edge. And now she was like this car accident was a year and a half ago. And she says her symptoms, um, it feels like that the accident happened last week. And I was talking to her just about she's like, I'm trying everything I can to support my brain. And I just don't know you know, if it's not worth it, blah, blah, blah. But I'm curious, like, for someone like that, what yeah. are the things um, that you would tell them to start doing, to start working yeah. towards improving? Certainly, someone like that should be doing primal paleo keto, you know, mm-hmm. low-carb diet to reduce inflammation, staying physically active, exercising three to five times a week, mm-hmm. really key. Avoiding future concussions, because, of course, the first concussion you get isn't the bad one. It's the, it's the second, third, fourth one when the tissue hasn't recovered yet. Mm-hmm. Um, if she's a year and a half after after the last concussion, she's still foggy, fatigued, irritable, et cetera. She has some post-concussive syndrome stuff mm-hmm. and she has some chronic inflammation, some tract damage. Those sorts of things show up pretty reliably on EEGs and we can usually eliminate symptoms in three to six months with neurofeedback or biofeedback on the brain. Go right after the brain waves that are stuck and exercise the tissue that's inflamed essentially and, and train it back into range so she starts sleeping more deeply and having more calmness and more alertness. Yeah. So works very, very well. Other things might work as well uh, for her uh, in addition. Those would include, I mentioned um, uh, uh, neurofeedback already, but um, meditation or mindfulness could have some impact. Uh, for her, it's going to be all about getting enough sleep and deep sleep because her sleep is probably dysregulated. She's not mm-hmm. going to deeply sleep when she's asleep or wide awake when she's awake. She's kind of stuck in between the two states. So, um, you know, really getting a, ma- a handle on the regulation of that is fairly important. Um, there's nootropics, you know, things like CDP choline, which is a, an anti-aging med that is uh, good for remyelinating neurons. It's being used a little bit off-label now in MS and in brain injuries. Um, for me, you know, Maslow says, uh, or said to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. And for me, that hammer is neurofeedback. So I'm, uh, my, my first answer for things like injuries is always, oh, great, let's just rebuild the tissue for you yeah. or with you, you know? So it's more of an exercise perspective on taking control of the injury and less of a cognitive or, you know, psychological perspective. So yeah. I would expect that I would see fog markers for her, fatigue markers, probably the injuries would show up. Mm-hmm. The evidence of the sleep issue, this, I'm sure she has anxiety if she's chronically depri- sleep deprived. Um, I'm sure she has slowed processing speed, mm-hmm. you know. And then we would usually get at least a standard deviation of change in all those metrics every 20 to 30 sessions. So wow. we would often get like three to five standard deviations out of range in a mm-hmm. post-concussive person. And the only difference between a post-concussive person and a non-concussive person is it takes a little bit longer to make it stick mm-hmm. when there's more damage. Or if you have developmental issues, same thing. You know, your brain's very, very different. A lot of tissue to work, stuff to work with. It takes longer. You know, four months, six months, eight months. Yeah. But if you have a typical brain, it's like three to four months to make a permanent change. So someone like her, I would just train her brain, get rid of the slow brain waves, get her feeling really crisp, alert, calm, focused, better mm-hmm. rested. And then hopefully it would stick. And if not, do a little more exercise until it did. Okay. Um, but for her, you know, not uh, throwing carbs in her mouth is probably pretty key. Not ignoring sleep issues. Mm-hmm. Being very protective of sleep. Um, those are the, probably the biggest things she has control over immediately. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about the neurofeedback. Cause, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's really why I want to uh-huh. interrogate you. Um, can you... Ex- 
just explain to you what neurofeedback sure. even is because I'm sure there are people listening who don't know what it is. Yeah, so neurofeedback is biofeedback in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike peripheral or body-based biofeedback, most neurofeedback is involuntary. So for the assessment we did for you, we put a cap on your head, squirt it full of gel, kind of a long involved process. For the, for the neurofeedback training days, we put two or three electrodes on your head and measure some of your brain waves moment mm-hmm. to moment. And those brainwaves will change all by themselves because that's what brains do. And whenever they happen to change in the right direction for half a second, we applaud the brain with more audio and visual and go, yeah, good job, brain. Like a spaceship flies faster or music gets louder or mm-hmm. a Pac-Man eats more dots or a car hits more zombies or something. And then the next moment, the brain swings in the quote-unquote wrong direction and we withhold the input. The car stalls, the music goes away, the dragon stops flying. Mm-hmm. And the next moment, the brain happens to move in the right direction and the game resumes. And then the trick is we move the goalposts every 30 seconds. So we're shaping okay. the activity. So you can think Skinner's pigeons, not Pavlov's dog. This is mm-hmm. uh, operant, not classical conditioning. So okay. we're, we're taking something that already exists, like yeah. brain waves, and we're shaping up or down amplitudes, connectivity very, very gently. The client doesn't have any voluntary control because the brain gets applauded for what it just did, let's say. And then your experience as a training client is noticing what happens over the next day or two. Very gent- Like you work out, and the next day you're like, ooh, I feel that muscle cluster. Yeah. I feel my balance is a bit different. My sleep is different. Well, same thing happens in neurofeedback. So you report in what's changing in your sleep, stress, mood, attention, energy, seizures, migraines, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we exercise your brain again. You get a subtle effect, report in what it does. We adjust the protocol, do it again. And so people train three times a week, and we usually do about three months of training to begin. And that's enough time, about 40 sessions of training, to knock back the majority of ADHD symptoms for people usually get rid of most anxiety, most sleep issues, can often wow. dial down seizures or migraines in that time, can almost always get rid of PTSD, OCD, those sorts of things in that time. So it's a way of working on your brain, but not like you're going to a psychologist where here's what's wrong with you. It's yeah. more like going to a fitness center. and Oh, hey, here's what your brain looks like. What do you want to work on? Where are your yeah. goals? So it's kind of like walking into a high-end gym like Equinox and getting a nice fitness assessment deciding, ooh, I want to work on my executive function. Not like, ooh, you have ADHD. Here's what's wrong with you. Yeah. So the agency is flipped where you're in charge. I mean, I happen to have a PhD, but I'm not people's doctor in this role. I'm really your coach. Mm-hmm. And my technicians are kind of your personal trainers. So you set up your fitness plan with your performance goals and mm-hmm. we use the brain mapping and the attention test to figure out where the performance bottlenecks are. We then exercise those patterns day to day. You start getting some change. After a few weeks, you start really feeling it. And then we remap your brain every 20 sessions and show you how it's changing. And you tell us how what you're experiencing. We refine your goals and keep pushing you further down the road in terms of more performance. Yeah, it's so amazing. And okay, how long are sessions usually? About half an hour. That's it? Yeah. And yeah. you said three, three times a week. Half an hour, three times a week. 40 sessions is a fair chunk for things like ADHD. Mm-hmm. We can usually knock back most symptoms, uh, uh, usually permanently, for ADHD, for instance, in 40 sessions or three months. I feel like this isn't talked about that often, and I don't it's know not. why. There's a lot of reasons for it. Um, it's been around for 51 years. It was mm-hmm. discovered at UCLA in 1967. Um, there's been many reasons why it's, it's lagging, and the clinical efficacy far outstrips the research backing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those reasons is that it's been very hard to blind EEG in a research context until oh. recently. So double-blind studies were hard to do until mm-hmm. very recently. Two... The process of neurofeedback is heavily individualized. It's hard to do a big study on an intervention when it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm. It's also, as I said, 40 
sessions minimum. Yeah. Well, now you have a large end study with individualized protocols and many, many sessions. It becomes very expensive. Even a, a smaller study, the FDA gold, you know, sort of standard study would take three to five million dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody owns neurofeedback. So mm. there's no one to invest that five million to then charge extra money for to make their drug money back. Yeah. The way it's done in most contexts these days. So there's many reasons for it. Um, the last reason would be why don't we all have incredible abs and yeah. great cardiovascular health? We know how to, but it takes a little bit of investment and time, and yeah. not everyone wants to, you know, go to the gym three times a week for nice abs. Some people would rather swallow Adderall mm-hmm. forever than get rid of their ADHD in three or four months of uh, neurofeedback. True. How often do you do it? I used to do it a fair amount. I'm kind of, it's kind of, you know, who shaves the barber? I'm kind of uh, busy these days. Um, But all my staff, everyone that works for us, trains three times a week. That's uh, awesome. I probably do it a couple times a month when I have some time. Usually when I'm creating new protocols or trying new, you know, experimental things, I try it. But how did you get into this? Well, I've worked in every aspect of mental health you can imagine. Um, mm-hmm. I ran group homes for retarded adults for many years with multiple disabilities, you know, mentally retarded, blind, deaf, everything. I worked uh, in, in childhood, uh, inpatient, acute psychiatric environments, geriatric environments, alcoholism environments. In every aspect of mental health I could come across, I saw lots of sort of revolving door services mm-hmm. where people came and went but were never really improved. Or not Most of them didn't get much benefit. Um, and the interventions were more palliative. And even in you know acute environments, they're more palliative. And then I got pretty badly injured and blew out some discs in my back working in an acute psych hospital. I was in charge of restraints, and we did too many in one day, and there was no staff. And I uh, ended up not being able to walk for some time and uh, couldn't do that hands-on, aggressive job that I had. Mm-hmm. And so um, I ended up going into uh, high tech for a couple of years and doing some of that for a while. And then when I went wanted to go back into working with people... Um, I didn't necessarily want to go back into the same kind of, you know, work I've been doing. And I found a neurofeedback center that did a lot of work with autistic spectrum people. And I had done a lot of work with autistic people in the past. I, you know, quite familiar. And I was shocked at what I was seeing in this center. I was seeing people discover language again and have eye contact and, and, and come back and have perseveration and sensory issues drop away. I was seeing autism change in mm-hmm. weeks and months not in years. Wow. And so that really flew in the face, and, and ADHD go away, and seizures drop, and incredible things at this new center I was working in, in Providence, Rhode Island, called the Neurodevelopment Center. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked by what I was seeing based on what I thought to be true historically about what we were doing in terms of mental health and performance. And so I ended up going back to um, grad school to study how this stuff works, because we, didn't, we still don't really understand it, but we, we knew less, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 20 years ago. And... Um, I was, I mean, really for me, this is about giving people access to make change. So it's not about, I'm your doctor, let me, you know, tell you of ADHD and then fix it for you. It's more like, oh, hey, you have some impulsivity? Great. Let's figure out what resource it is in your brain that's, you know, really bottlenecking and then train it for you. So my job is not to tell you what you need to work on. It's to demystify the neuroscience Mm -hmm. and then ask you what resources you'd like to improve. But it's your goals, your call, your agency your perspective here and our job at peak brain is just to help you execute on the proper sort of science and tech to get your brain moved in the way you want it so it's very much uh we're on your team and you're in charge not this top-down medical or psychological perspective the way that we work yeah and what's interesting is so because you would get benefits from this whether or not you 
made diet and lifestyle changes. You would. And whether or not you have a problem. Mm. So I can yeah, work on your vigilance point. or your attention if you have ADHD. Yeah. I can also work on it if you don't. Yeah. You want to just crank up your vigilance or your attention. Mm-hmm. Sure. But yes, you can have imperfect things. You can be drinking or smoking all of the cannabis or yeah. not sleeping well or really anxious and ruminating all the time. And neurofeedback reaches in and makes the change for you to the resource. And you have to engage with the process, keep coming and tell us what's happening. But you don't have to necessarily work through your stuff cognitively or emotionally or psychologically to make the change. Yeah. So I do work on trauma sometimes and never talk about people's history. Just mm. dial down the reactivity of their system so that it is as easily triggered. Yeah. It's a really interesting approach because, you know, there are so many people who say you've got to got to dive into that yeah, deep therapy. Through it. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I, I'd rather just pull the teeth of it and not have to work through it <laughs> by far. But I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really like a functional neuroscientist. Yeah. Much closer to your, your favorite personal trainer yeah. than anything else. I happen to have some good workouts that get you the results you're looking for. Mm-hmm. But... That's it. So, and I, you know, you listed some of the things that can help with, and mm. I think a lot of people think it, like, associate this with a brain issue mm-hmm. or cognitive function, but it can also help with even, like, physiological symptoms. Like, Lacey sure. was talking about how it helps her with her, her gut issues. Yeah, um, gut dysregulation, um, pain, chronic pain. Mm-hmm. I have great protocols for that. Um, there's good research showing neurofeedback can raise T cells. Really? Mm-hmm. So if you have some immune systems, you can boost your T cells. That's not a, that's not a permanent change. Yeah. It's a relaxation response. It's uh-huh. quite, quite robust. Um, we can do work on creativity and access to deep generative emotions. Mm-hmm. If you're shut down and can't feel your own emotions or talk about things, you can break open that wellspring and have access to that deep wellspring juicy center you may have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the clinical things. And I'll use clinical language in spite of not being a psychologist just because you know what these things mean, like ADHD and anxiety and mm-hmm. uh, uh, sleep issues, seizures, migraines, PTSD, OCD, major depression. The research literature is actually pretty good for all of those things in neurofeedback. So we almost always help people eliminate performance bottlenecks and then take their performance up above where it was uh, ever, usually. It's so interesting to me. I wonder if there are any, are there any major companies that you know of that like institute this with all their employees? There's some that use it. Like there's some teams in the NFL like, that use it with their, with all their employees. Oh, really? Um, there's a few high tech teams using it here in, or companies here and there. Um, but it's still a niche, you know, player uh, sort of space because in spite of being around for more than 50 years, it takes a few years of getting deep into the neuroscience before you get good at doing this. Mm-hmm. So it's become this sort of apprenticeship model of teaching people who teach people. And it's only been 50 years. So I'm like a third generation, you know, person in the field. And it's a pretty sophisticated set of knowledge. So that's the barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. So you end up with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of hardware and software plus the sort of intangible cost of a few years of the knowledge of neuroscience and neurofeedback and everything else. So it's, it's remained a little niche because it's been kept in that medical and psychological context where you need the skilled, gifted person yeah. at the top of the center to run the programs. And so you know, one thing we're doing differently is trying to make it more of a gym network where we have mm-hmm. all the deep bench of skills centralized virtually and we have all the individual gyms available wherever people want to come in and work on their stuff so yeah so where all do you have centers uh our physical centers are in los angeles we have two on the west side we're here in culver city of course and then downtown los angeles we also have one in uh, orange county in costa mesa in downtown san diego and we have another flagship office in downtown st louis 
Okay. Um, and then we have about a third of our clients are self-trainers. They come to one of our big offices for a few days, get their brain mapped, and leave with equipment. And we work with them remotely to teach them to do neurofeedback and keep trying different things and getting the same results they would get in one of our offices, but at home. Okay. And many of these people are biohackers who are going to train for a long time or share yeah. the year with their friends and family. And so they're really doubling down and getting into the technology when they're home trainers. Okay. Uh, so if somebody doesn't live in one of those areas and they wanted to do it, they yeah. would need to like be a home trainer, basically? Yeah. I mean, well, there's certainly other people in the field that mm -hmm. do this stuff. If you want to find a good person, look for someone who does QEEG, the brain mapping that we went over mm -hmm. at the beginning. That's the threshold for sort of evidence-based neurofeedback. But yes, we have the five locations. You're more than welcome to come to one of our offices. If you want to work with Peak Brain and you're not near one of the offices, we would just want to see you for two or three days in one of the offices to begin. And then we can do everything virtually after that. And okay. I also do other, I mean, we have uh, uh, other locations. We have some technicians and QEEG ability in Portland, Oregon, in Copenhagen, in uh, a, few other, a few other cities throughout the world. And we do workshops and things periodically as well. So if you're interested in getting some, some neurofeedback, just let us know. And maybe we'll do a workshop near you. Maybe come to one of our offices. Yeah. Or maybe we can help you find somebody locally. So either way. Okay. I'm curious, are there any people who have come in here who particularly stand out to you as like just a really incredible case with the benefits? I mean, every like, case is like that, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, I come across people, for instance, we're part of the um, this, this network of neurofeedback providers called the Homecoming for Veterans, mm -hmm. hc4v.org, I think. And the Homecoming program pledges, uh, it's a network of neurofeedback people who pledge one free chair per office for a veteran experiencing PTSD and blast injuries. Mm. So often these are very classic, if you will, PTSD yeah. kind of cases. Intrusive thoughts, waking up, sweating all night, screaming, shouting, really tr severe trauma, often physical blast injuries as well. Mm -hmm. I can't get most of these guys to finish my free program because they feel too good and they stop coming halfway into it. Wow. So 20 sessions in, they're like gone because they're feeling great, they got a full-time job, and they don't feel like coming across town on the bus to take the program, whatever they want to do. So... The PTSD stuff, when I, mm -hmm. when I dial it down, regardless if, it, if it's a soldier who has a war fighting injury or a 12-year-old who's bullied or an adult who had a lot of childhood trauma, dialing down trauma for people seems to be some, you know, one of the most amazing things to do and one of the most reliable things we can do is that okay. react, reactive sort of mode, the way your brain gets easily, you know, feels easily betrayed and hurt and you know, it's prickly and yeah. you can't self-soothe as easily. And when it's extreme, PTSD, now you're in a more fight or flight, fear-driven mode all the time. So we really find a lot of uh, benefit for soothing that reactivity for people. It's also fun just to have a steady stream of ADHD people come in and then a few months later have them be the most highly performant people they could ever be. Yeah. You know, so we, we have we have great results with almost everything we work on. It's kind of like fitness, not like medicine. So, mm -hmm. you know, exercise works. If you do it, maybe you can dial in a better workout or a more effective workout. Mm -hmm. But it works for almost everybody. Is it like exercise though in the sense that do you have to continue doing neurofeedback for a long time to keep up with it? Or is it like once you're trained, you're just functioning better? It's more the latter. Okay, um, that's awesome. It's such that if you bring up a, the resource enough mm -hmm. in the brain, your brain takes over. Let's say you have a problem falling asleep at night and mm -hmm. we build that resource, that reflex. So after a few months of training, you have the ability to downshift, turn your mind off and slide into sleep at will. You're gonna practice that every day. 
So even though you aren't training that resource every day, you're practicing it so it's self-reinforcing. Kind of like if you went to the, to the physical therapist for a knee problem and they, they fixed your gait through a lot of physical therapy, you're then walking around every day practicing the strong knee muscles. Yeah. So it's that sort of thing where some things just re-regulate attention, stress, sleep, mood, and stay re-regulated because you're continuing to use them. Mm-hmm. But like I got halfway through my PhD program, was you know working full-time, teaching full-time, writing, blah, blah, blah. Things broke down and my ADHD popped back up that I had eliminated a decade before mm-hmm. doing neurofeedback. So I did a little bit more and nailed it back down. Interesting. So it's more about the resources and you know usually we, re- we regulate things and you get long-term change. But the brain is a changeable organ so stuff can push back and come back and you know our life management or our stress or our resources can break can, can fall over as well and that can cause things to you know pop back up. But usually it's a long-term change, yeah. Okay, that's amazing. I'm also, last question, are there any things that people can, easy things in their daily life that they can do to help sort of emulate the experience? Obviously, it's not going to be the same thing as neurofeedback, but I always wonder if things like, people talk about like doing Sudoku and puzzles, like do those actually help? They don't, sadly. Cognitive training doesn't really bring up the resources. It just brings up your skill in that game. Okay. That makes um, you feel better because I don't do any of that. Yeah, don't you, you waste your time really on those mostly. Now, meditation or, or mindfulness mm. doesn't produce most of what neurofeedback does, but some of the same things. And, if okay. you, and meditation, for those that don't know, is not actually blanking your mind. It's anchoring mm-hmm. your mind, focusing on something in particular. And uh, we have a, a free tutorial on the Peak Brain website, which tells you how to meditate, 20-minute practice. But... That's when you, you're carrying around the equipment to meditate with you all the time. Mm-hmm. So you might as well learn to do basic practices and then practice for 10 minutes a day. Literally 10 minutes a day will make a change. And that is, um, I mean, sleep, you, you know if you aren't sleeping well, if you're eating well. We know roughly how to do those things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I shouldn't be eating all the sugar. I shouldn't be staying up all night long buying things on the internet. You know, like, you know when you're doing those things. Uh, poorly but we don't necessarily know that we have the ability and the responsibility to anchor our minds to practice that executive tone if you will through meditation so unless you're profoundly anxious or really really sleep deprived and then you fall asleep when you meditate then I would recommend meditating 10 minutes a day and that will actually build resources and it's free and you have a lifelong skill you can develop over time too so okay 10 minutes a day everyone needs to do it that's right awesome well thank you so much can you just remind everyone where they can find all information from you more about this so you can find me at andrew hill phd at twitter or at uh, instagram Uh, peak brain is peak brain la also at Instagram and Twitter, and I think we're Peak Brain Institute on Facebook. We have a free chat box on the website for asking us all questions, and that goes to one of our senior staff, not to some random call center. So let us know your brain questions. And we always love to hear what people are experiencing, so please look us up on these uh, sources, get in touch, and let us know how we can support your brain health. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Dr. Hill for coming on the podcast and sharing all of his knowledge and expertise remember if you want to look into the peak brain institute you can go to peakbraininstitute.com slash christina and get 10 percent off of services or if you just mention this podcast you can get that 10 percent off you can also listen to more from dr hill on the head first podcast with dr hill and you can find more on my Twitter, Instagram, just everything is linked through peakbraininstitute.com and all the info will be in the show notes. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you're having a wonderful day and continue to have an amazing day. And I will talk to you again next time. Bye.